and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Hattie Williams, news reporter. Coming up on this week's episode, it may be a slow season for news, but not everyone is on holiday. In our news pages this week, we spoke to bishops who are spending the summer drawing attention to rising food prices, gambling and decreasing life expectancy, issues which they say are hitting the poorest areas of the UK hardest. And in our interview this week, the Bishop of Liverpool, Paul Bays, discusses concerns that the church has failed to reach communities in the poorest areas of the UK. I'm joined today by Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor, Madeline Davies, Deputy News Editor, and Tim Wyatt, Digital Editor. Uh, Tim, you spoke to the Bishop of St Albans, uh, Dr Alan Smith, this week, um, who's been particularly vocal on government plans to regulate gambling machines. Um, this has been on the agenda since October amid sort of growing concerns that gamblers can bet as much as £100 every 20 seconds on fixed odds betting terminals in their local pub. What does Bishop Smith have to say about this? It's a long concern of his, um, going back some time actually. Um, he's come out this week to basically, I guess, keep the pressure up on, on the government. There's this long-awaited review, which, as you said, was announced back in October and was supposed to be out by now, um, but is yet as yet un- unpublished. Um, and there has been some rumours and speculation in some of the press that this is partly because there's a kind of internal battle in the government um, between those who would like to impose tougher regulations on these fixed odd betting terminals, or um, uh, particularly by lowering the maximum stake from £100 to maybe as little as £2. And there's a counter uh, backlash, I guess, from that from the Treasury, which is actually cautioning that if they do do this, it would um, cut as much as £400 million pounds from in, in tax revenue. Um, so Dr. Smith was basically saying that, um, you know, he's going to keep a watchful eye and he's going to keep the pressure on the government to, to deliver this review. Obviously, this um, these gambling machines have been around for a while. Uh, why is it in the news now? Why is this coming up? Um, so it's been something that Dr. Smith has really um, launched, uh, not not alone. Um, there is a number of um, campaigning organisations that have really brought this up. But over the past few years, I think uh, these FOBTs, as they're known, have really um, grabbed grab the headlines, grabbed the limelight. Uh, there's research that's come out that that kind of describes them as the crack cocaine of gambling and that um, they're they're not like it's not like gambling on on a sporting event like horse racing it just takes one person in a machine in a bookie and uh, the num- the the odds are pure generated by a computer um, so they're hugely profitable for bookmakers there's no really uncertainty there you know every pound that goes in they get a certain amount of profit but they also can be really devastating for people who are stuck in problem gambling or who, who are addicted um, uh, Dr. Smith has, has tried actually before the election, he introduced a bill to the House of Lords, which would give local authorities the powers to be able to regulate how many machines there are per per high street um, amidst some fears that in some particularly poorer parts of the country, you, every kind of third shop on these quite deprived areas is now a, a bookmakers. Um, that, that, that bill timed out to the election. And so... Um, his latest uh, ploy, I suppose, to try and rein this in is to keep pushing up pressure on the government to to, to reduce the, the stake. Um, there's a quick stat, actually. The Gambling Commission's latest report said that um, British gamblers in total in the last 12 months had lost £1.8 billion just on these machines alone, which is a staggering amount of money just in 12 months. Each machine makes an average of £53,000 a year, which is almost twice the annual wage, uh, the average wage. Gosh, so there are some ethical issues there, but um, on a personal level, Madeline, you spoke to a man who's actually grappled with um, a gambling addiction. He said that these machines have been sort of instrumental in, as it were, his downfall. Um, can you tell me what struck you about his story particularly? 
Yeah, so Mark Evans got in touch with us a while ago, actually, um, to say that he was happy to um, talk quite frankly about um, the impact that um, compulsive gambling had had on his life. Um, and he, um, I offered him the opportunity to be anonymous, but he was really happy to give us his full name and a photograph um, and say that it was really important to be transparent about um, the really detrimental effect that these machines can have. Um, he talked about um, a childhood growing up with a dad who was um, a gambler and how he was drawn back in um, because of these um, machines, um, basically, um, about the fact that it was possible to win and lose a lot of money on them. Um, and he's just got some really strong opinions um, about what the government needs to do in order to um, to protect people, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth pointing out that um, the government, uh, particularly the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, which is running this review, um, have said that the reason that the, re- the review has been delayed was because of the election. Um, so that, uh, the, the minister responsible, who's Tracy Crouch, uh, told MPs that uh, it was in the final processes in which a process where they kind of consult across government to get final approval. And then the PERDA period before the election kicked in and they were no longer able to do kind of substantive work. And then obviously with the post-election, there was a reshuffle, ministers change, um, and which has set the whole process back. Um, and so she says uh, it will be published, but not before October at the earliest. I think this story says something interesting about the role of bishops in Parliament, in the House of Lords, where a lot of their role is to report back from parishes and communities from the front line and to say what impact certain policies are having on real people. So when they get responses from the government that are just about money and tax revenue, um, they can say that doesn't really wash. We can give you stories and, and see the damage that's been done. I think a lot of our listeners will have seen um, Broken on BBC One with Sean Bean, which the Bishop of Jarrow wrote very powerfully about in our comment pages um, a few weeks ago. And, and there's an episode there where um, a woman comes to Sean Bean, a Roman Catholic priest who has, who has stolen about a quarter of a million pounds from her employer just to fund an addiction to gambling machines. And, um, and, and, that, and that plays out... Um, in her life and, and there's some very powerful scenes where I don't want to spoil it for people but after a tragedy happens her daughter sort of goes and starts smashing up the machines in, in the local bookmakers and, and Sean Bean sort of quite rouses his congregation to this great injustice in, in one of his sermons and says why down this road one of the poorest roads in our city are there you know five bookmakers with gambling machines but you can't find a chemist and you can't find a you know another shop you need why is this happening and it, it, it's seen that the, the church really rises up to um, tackle this. Some of the members of the congregation actually get their own hammers and go down and start smashing them up, which might not be the solution everyone sees. As, um... It's also interesting to note that back in February's General Synod, there was a motion uh, brought by the Diocese of London, which um, kind of tied into a lot of what we talked about, and it was calling on the government to reduce the maximum stake um, from £100 down to £2 for these fixed odds betting terminals. Um, and the motion kind of made reference to the fact that, of course, within within the church, there are quite a wide range of views about the issue of gambling as a whole. But actually, we all agree that problem gambling and gambling addiction is a devastating kind of social uh, injustice. And um, they very deliberately did a, a vote um, by a machine so we could see exactly who voted. And it was striking like the first time I've ever seen it where every single person in all three houses voted in favour of the motion uh, without a single abstention. I think we had this back in around 2007 when Gordon Brown became Prime Minister and there was talk of these super casinos and the church was very sceptical about that and I think there were accusations of trying to stop people having fun or being judgmental or whatever 
And I think, again, it's just a case of where the church can play a role in saying, hang on, just because something brings money into the economy and tax revenue, are there other consequences, social consequences, consequences for relationships? And of course, other, other campaigners of no faith say that too, but the church does seem to have a, a key role here. It's interesting what you were saying about um, viewing sort of the human cost of these things. And the Bishop of St Albans also spoke this week about the potentially negative effects of Brexit on food prices. And he also talks about um, the sort of human impact of that. Tim, you were following the story. What did he actually say? Yeah, so Dr Smith has been very vocal, very active this week. Um, uh, he's As well as his concern around gambling, he's also the president of something called the Rural Coalition, which is a group of 12... Um, kind of countryside focused organisations. Um, in that capacity, he has um, done an interview with the BBC and, and a letter written a letter to the Times warning that um, if the the Brexit negotiations uh, don't go to plan and we crash out of the European Union without a free trade deal, this could lead to sort of quite a severe spike in prices for food and other problems for the farming sector, which will will roll out. Given the UK only produces about sixty percent of its own food, so we're reliant. On other countries to provide us our food, this will this will hit um, uh, and see food prices going up in shops, which is likely to hit the poorest hardest. As uh, research shows that the poorer you are, the greater percentage of your income is spent on food. So the effect these issues are having on the poorest uh, in the UK and the poorest parts of the UK that seems to be a kind of um, overall concern here. Um, this was also raised by the Bishop of Liverpool, Paul Bays, um, this week. He said that he was. Uh, disturbed but not surprised about new research from the University of Manchester which suggests that people are more likely to die young if they live in the north rather than the south of England. Um, Tim can you tell us a bit more about this research where it came from and, and what it might mean? Yeah it's uh, it's quite an interesting study so it's a group of academics who are mostly from the University of Manchester who have looked back over a 50-year period from 1965 to 2015 and they basically, looking back at surveys of censuses and other data, they have worked out um, how many people per 10,000 will die before their 75th birthday, which they consider to be kind of premature deaths, a not really of old age, but of other problems. Um, and then they compared these rates of premature deaths between uh, the South and the North of England. And what they found was that uh, both at the start of the period in 1965, uh, there was this, this significant gap you know, where you were, there were more people dying younger in the north than in the south. And over the period of the study, thankfully, this number of people dying younger, dying too young, has decreased significantly, but that gap has never got smaller. Um, and so now, uh, if you live in the south of England, you're much less likely uh, to die young uh, than you are in the north. In fact, they say over this period, about 1.2 million more people have died before the age of 75 in the north than in the south since 1965 and that's even when you take into account and adjust for the differences in population. Um, Bishop Bayes also commented um, on concerns raised by the Bishop of Burnley, Philip North, um, and he said that the church is abandoning the poorest areas in the country. Madeline, you've been following the story, um, can you just remind us what he said and what actually the reactions were this week? Yes, yeah, so addressing new wine um, this month, Philip North said that um, the church was basically complicit in the abandonment of the poor and that it was withdrawing from the poorest areas of the country. So he cited um, both attendance figures um, and also spending and also some of the discrepancy in um, applications for jobs in different parts of the country. Um, so I've been speaking to various people about reaction to those remarks 
Um, broadly, I would say that people um, welcomed the talk and its focus, um, but there was a degree of pushback in terms of um, people arguing that there's not been a total abandonment of the poor. Um, for example, um, Bishop Bayes said that actually, you know, some people are responding to a call to serve in deprived areas and that the quality of people serving there is very high. Um, also, the principles of two theological colleges um, saying that actually there is a focus on this in some parts of the country, um, that they do attempt to place students um, in deprived areas, if, even if only for a placement. Um, I had a very long conversation with Canon Chris Chivers, who is head of Westcott House. Um, we had a very long conversation about the extent to which Philip North's comments are accurate. Um, and he, he did suggest that um, perhaps there isn't a strategic focus on this problem and that we actually need to think what is the purpose of the C of E um, and how are we present in every single area of the country, um, despite some of the financial pressures that the Church of England faces. I thought it was interesting what Mike Lloyd, um, principal of Wycliffe Hall, said, where he rejected suggestions young clergy were not prepared to sacrifice. He said, I don't believe that's true. I think people will make costly decisions if they just get a glimpse of what God is doing in particular contexts. Um, I just wondered if some clergy start out very idealistically and with, with high hopes of working in difficult areas when they train and when certain aspects of real life kicks in, like children, spouses, work, perhaps the draw or the calling to the southeast becomes all the greater. I just, I just wondered if there's a difference. I think it would be really helpful to hear more from priests who've managed to um, have families um, in these areas. So I remember a few years ago speaking to Nicholas Henschel, who's the Dean of Chelmsford now, and he talked about, um, you know, how it was possible, how he had sent his children to local schools and they'd really thrived. And I think perhaps that's what uh, Mike Floyd was referring to is we need to hear more from people who are actually doing this, um, encouraging people um, that, you know, it is possible. Um, and, you know, this is what ministry might look like for you. And, and sort of here's the path that we've sort of tread beforehand. I was speaking to someone this week who contrasted our situation, well the Anglican situation with Roman Catholics where well priests are A, not married, so some of these concerns don't arise, and B, deployed wherever they're told to go by their bishop having sworn an oath of obedience. And you, you see that in Broken on BBC One, um, <clears throat> that this, this issue simply doesn't arise, people don't have a choice as to where they work in the same way. It's interesting, some of the comments I've seen on social media over the last week as well have focused on not on the importance of the church, not just kind of uh, not abandoning the poor, but actually the church being a church not just for the poor, but of the poor, and saying, you know, are we hiring and recruiting and training up enough leaders, lay and ordained, who grew up on council estates or who came from deprived communities? Because it would be good, of course, if we carry on uh, deploying people to poorer communities, but really you don't just want to be a church which sends middle-class people from comfortable suburbs into rough estates, but you want to be a church which is a church where the people on the rough estate claim as their own and have their own belonging and raise up their own leaders. So the message I think I was getting from ministry division and also from the theological colleges was not that people are failing to get through the selection process, but they're not actually being put forward necessarily by diocese in the first place. So it's really a question of encouraging vocations, I think, rather than necessarily that once people get to selection stage, they're not making it through. I know Julian Hubbard at Ministry Division said you know, they'd love to get um, more people from the diocese, that they would really welcome that. 
Yes, so I emailed Bishop Bayes for a comment earlier this week on this, um, and he actually dropped by the office in the end on his way home, which is very nice of him. Um, we had a conversation um, really sort of responding to Philip North's comments, um, particularly from the perspective in Liverpool, which contains some of the most deprived parishes in the country. When you first read it, what, what was your take on, on, on those remarks? I've heard, uh, so I served with Philip on the Archbishop's Transcript for Evangelism. Oh, yeah. And, and, I've, and I've heard him speak in this kind of area before. Um, I, I think the things he says are vital. I think we need to hear them. We, the church as a whole, uh, need to hear them. I think he speaks out of an experience, uh, uh, b- both in the North and in the South, uh, of genuinely relating to people who are outside the usual strands of people to whom the Church of England relates. And so when he speaks, and, and I think it was courageous of the new wine organisers to invite him, and it, was, mm-hmm. and it was good that he went, and it's good that he shared this challenge with them. Yep. Um, so I felt very positively about it all, uh, as I feel very positively about this bishop. I think he's, I think he's a great blessing to the Church. From your point of view in Liverpool, so one of the reasons I approached you was because the Church Urban Fund has um, stressed that it's one of the three dioceses with the, with the most deprivation. Um, so did the picture that he painted um, kind of resonate with you? Um, in, you know, He made some really strong comments around being complicit in the abandonment of the poor and basically withdrawing from some of the poorest areas. Do you think that's fair or would you want to caveat that somewhat? I think that the main thing, that, I think the main area where I, I wouldn't want Philip to be misunderstood yeah. is the stuff where he says that some people go to minister in estate areas because they can't get a job anywhere else. Yeah. And I know that some clergy have found that personally offensive, and I can understand why that is. Yeah. Um, I, I think it is true that, 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 that a lot of people um, um, in, inevitably feel drawn to the richer parts of the country quite often because of their family commitments or because their spouse needs to work. Um, um, That's true. But certainly my experience in Liverpool, I've been there now, I'm I'm in my fourth year there now as bishop, Um, is is that the quality of our people who are in the areas of deprivation, both in the inner city and in the outer estates, is actually very high. And, And when I look at our folks, there are some who themselves come from pretty upper middle class backgrounds, but who have committed their lives to working uh, among the poor, not just for 10 minutes, but for decades. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and they continue to be committed to stay there. Um, and, and, and that's a picture that I think is true in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. The, 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 both of those things that I've just said are true. Number one, a lot of clergy find it difficult to commit to poor areas. Number two, the ones that do commit are often of very high calibre. Uh, Certainly it's true in Liverpool. Our thing in Liverpool, what we say is that we're asking God for a bigger church so that we can make a bigger difference. Mm. And we say more people knowing Jesus, more justice in the world. And and that agenda, which really goes back at least to the time of Bishop David Shepherd, to hold together justice and Jesus, that, that attracts people. Um, having said that, there is no doubt that if you're in the Northwest and you and, and you put a job out there through Church Times advertisement or anything else, yeah. you, you sometimes find it very hard to get a shortlist. Yeah. 
And, and I think, and I've heard people say to me, that's a fantastic job, and yours is a fantastic diocese. It's just a shame that it's in the northwest of England. Mm. And, and partly I think that's about poverty, as Bishop Phillips says, but, but partly I think it, it's, it's because there is a divide in the nation between the north and the south. Yeah. Uh, my last job was in St. Albans Diocese, and, and there is no doubt that life uh, in lots and lots of ways is easier there. There are areas of real deprivation and difficulty in St. Albans, one thinks of Luton or Watford, uh, but there are also areas of substantial wealth. In Liverpool, it's quite hard to find those areas of wealth. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that doesn't just apply to the church. That, that there's, I believe there's a systemic discrimination in the way that resource is allocated in England. And I'm not saying this is a specific party political thing because it's been going on for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that the North in general, and my own area of the Northwest, it is, is constantly finding it hard to obtain national resource. And our own local political leaders find that very difficult. And I identify with them in their frustration. And I'm sure that that's part of the reason why professional people, including the clergy, just have to get over a bit of a a, a barrier, really, before they can come and see the area and realise how rich it is in in human terms. What do you see as your uh, role as a bishop? Um, to address some of the, the points that Philip made. So um, Canon Chivers just now was saying um, bishops, um, when they're thinking about deployment, need to be encouraging people, including the people already there, and thinking about who is in their pool and who actually might have skills or might be the right person, given the right push, to go and serve somewhere, such as the places that were described. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true, and that's what we do. And, I, and I, I, I think we need to break the idea, which is not prevalent in Liverpool, but, but I, I have heard it around the church, that the way to get on in the church is to be the vicar of some whacking great big wealthy suburban church mm. with an enormous staff. Um, um, that, that was, you know, I'm the Bishop of Liverpool, I'm a comprehensive, educated guy, I never led a church, uh, uh, which you might call a mega church. I've, I've spent much of, not all, but much of my ministry in, in areas of deprivation. And, and, and I would not want the Church of England to feel that the only way to get on in the church is to live in the suburbs. Um, um, having said that, suburban people need Jesus too. And, 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 and you can cascade the wealth of the wealthy in such a way that it blesses the poor. Uh, but but, but I, I would say that, that, that in, in terms of our... So, so this year we ordained eight priests, but we ordained 16 deacons. So we, we, we've got an, an, a, a substantial increase in numbers of people, not all stipendiary, but in numbers of people who want to work. And lots of folks are in touch with us in Liverpool because they want to work among the poor. And so we need to just keep saying that that way of being a minister is blessed by the church, is resourced by the church, and that if you come to work on an outer estate in the northwest or in the inner city in the northwest, you're not going to be hung out to dry. The resources of the diocese are there to support you. And, and, it, and it is particularly true in Liverpool that, that not only the ordained, but also many of our lay leaders within our diocesan office have committed themselves as lay Christians to work in the north rather than just to go where the money is. And so there's quite a lot of commitment around. And, and, and Bishop Phillips' words are rightly uh, uh, challenging and they're rightly sharp, but, but I wouldn't want them to drown out the fact 
that actually there are substantial numbers of people who have heard this call to be among the poor and who are seeking to answer it. Um, another point that he made was that we need to raise up leaders from within working class and deprived communities. And there was a suggestion that that would actually need quite a radical change just in, in terms of some of the structures so that we're not just, I think he's sort of talked about raising up white middle class graduates as leaders. Um, you mentioned on Twitch that you would consider yourself working class, you were comprehensively educated. Um, that's not the case with all of the House of Bishops. What are, you, what are your thoughts on... Um, on his comments there about raising up people from the very communities that we're yeah, talking about. Yeah, I think I mean I mean I think I think Philip is absolutely right. We do we, we need we need to speak into the whole of England. You know, the slogan of the Church of England is a Christian presence in every community. Mm-hmm. And and if what and, and we have not so far become what you might call a White Highlands church mm-hmm. in, in, in the way that other churches are constantly tempted to do, because we've got this sense that we're meant to be there for everyone. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, but it, it, it remains true, and this is another phrase of Bishop Philip that I'm not sure he put in this particular talk, mm-hmm. but I, I've heard him say that selection conferences for vicars are like um, um, a, a, a officer, selection conferences for officers in the army. Mm-hmm. That actually, if you're used to going away for a weekend and blagging it, that then uh, uh, you stand a pretty good chance of getting in. And, and if you're inarticulate or if you can't express what you, what you mean in, in, lo- in words with lots of syllables, then you're going to have it. You're going to have it, find it difficult. Yeah. In in Liverpool, we've got a long history of trying, not always successfully, but but quite often successfully, to encourage folks from areas of deprivation themselves to put themselves forward for ministry. And, and we've developed, and this is not in my time, but but previous colleagues who are still around, some of them now in retirement, have developed group-based models, um, uh, m- models of training that are not relying on a book culture. Uh, ways of actually raising people up to be in leadership in the church who don't have to pretend to be middle class first. Mm. And, 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 and I, 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 I'm strongly committed to sustaining that and, and, I'm, and I'm strongly committed to resisting the, the idea that in order to be um, a, a, a minister of the gospel, an ordained minister, a preacher of the gospel, you've got to have one, two or three degrees. It's great that we've got academic theologians but if we become the kind of church where in, in order to be a leader, you first have to be able to speak the language of the privileged, then as, as a national church, to use a theological word, we are stuffed. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk. If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sought After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening.